MSW Media. Hey everybody, this episode is brought to you by BetterHelp, and we'd like to thank BetterHelp for supporting Clean Up on Aisle 45. For 10% off your first month, go to BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash cleanup. Start living a better life today. And thanks to BetterHelp for sponsoring this show. of law is not just some lawyer's turn of phrase. It is the very foundation of our democracy. The essence of the rule of law is that like cases are treated alike. That there not be one rule for Democrats and another for Republicans, one rule for the powerful, another for the powerless, one rule for the rich and another for the poor, or different rules depending upon one's race or ethnicity. To serve as Attorney General at this critical time is a calling I am honored and eager to answer. So yeah, now it's clean up on aisle 45 time. And for a long while yet, it is going to be clean up on aisle 45. Hello and welcome to episode 51 of Clean Up on Aisle 45. It's Wednesday, January 5th, 2022. Woo! I am your co-host, <laughs> Allison Gill, and with me as usual, still writing 2021 on all of his checks, my host, <laughs> Andrew Torres. I was going to make that joke. Uh, always a pleasure. Uh, I, I will. I still think it's 1987 sometimes, so, you know, tw- 2022 is going to be a challenge, but... Um, Thank you for having me. And as always, thank you to our new patrons. So thanks to Cordy Crawford, Elizabeth Marie Zanikowski, which uh, sounds like, I don't know, Serbian royalty or something. That's fantastic. It's Kevin. Impressive. Yeah. And please loosen up on the global pin shortage. My wife has sewing projects. <laughs> thank you all so much. Yeah. <laughs> oh. I you, love our patrons. <laughs> I know. They seriously make this show possible. Thank you so much. And if you'd like to get a shout out on the show, uh, plus the ad-free feed, plus our bonus stuff, head over to patreon.com slash aisle45pod. That's A-I-S-L-E 45-P-O-D. You can sign up for as little as a buck an episode. So worth it. Uh, and now. stuff. <laughs> on with our show. All right. So uh, breaking news today that uh, dovetails yeah, with something that uh, might have flown under the radar a little bit over the holidays. So the breaking news you've likely heard by now, that is court documents that show that New York Attorney General Tish James has issued subpoenas to Donald Trump Jr. and Ivanka in connection with her civil investigation into Trump's business practices. Uh, We're going to get into those. I'll put the proverbial pin in it. Uh, And the background, um, you you knew this was coming. Uh, Cy Vance stepped down as Manhattan District Attorney, effective this past Monday, January 3rd, uh, breaking a promise of sorts, leaving unresolved the question of whether his office will criminally indict the former guy. Yes, yes. And, and I kept <laughs> I kept asking him, sending him messages like, you going to update your statement, bro? You going to update your statement, bro? Because he said he would make a charging decision before yep. he left office. He simply ran out of time. And that's the good news, right, Andrew, is that he didn't <laughs> tell every he didn't decide not to charge. He said, I didn't have time I have to finish it here, handing it off to you folks. 
And of course, as as posited by us here on this show and our other shows, it's U.S. Attorney Pomerantz who is remaining sort of as the bridge between the two uh, district attorneys to to carry that over. So he's staying in. Now, to recap, New York Attorney General's office has also opened a criminal investigation into Trump, and Tish James' civil investigation has been working closely with the Manhattan DA's criminal investigation. So she's got a civil one. They've uh, he's Manhattan DA's criminal one, and in fact, OAG staff attorneys have been cross-designated as special ADAs as part of the joint investigation. Is what we're just talking about there for a, a little, partly at least. So while it's true that these particular subpoenas will not lead directly to indictments, it is also true. <laughs> That the information discovered is being shared between offices pursuant to a very close cooperative agreement between the, the Wonder Twin Powers. And this is part of their what what the Trumps are angry about. Right. Uh, and, and we're not just waiting on referrals. Um, and it's also true the Manhattan DA's office has a number of open criminal investigations that concern the former guy, including criminal tax fraud, tax evasion by the Trump organization that led to CFO Alan Weisselberg's arrest back in July of last year last year ooh, <laughs> and two more things we also know of open investigations by the westchester county da and trump national golf club and of course the atlanta investigation fulton county da fonnie willis into election interference whoo yeah and so if you're wondering hey have those things made the former guy panic remember last month we covered trump's desperate lawsuit against his james seeking to disqualify her cooperation and end the civil investigation into his business practices because she is ostensibly quote guided by political animus end of quote uh, if you missed that episode spoiler that lawsuit is going nowhere fast um and, and by the way i thought republicans were the party of prosecutorial discretion but uh, you know like I guess no. not when it comes to, you know, investigating that. <laughs> Guided by political animus is my new band. <laughs> I could see that being a Rush cover band, right? right do a little right. of the trees. There you go. So uh, people had mixed feelings about Cy Vance. I got it. I know. Mm-hmm. We've covered that on our all of our shows. His tenure was winding down. Vance reminded folks that he wasn't running for office again. So he really had nothing to gain or lose politically from indicting or not indicting Donald Trump. Uh, and if you're a pessimist... I can point out that Vance's probe began way back in 2018 before being delayed by both COVID and, of course, the former guy's obstruction efforts to block subpoenas. Yeah, right. right. <laughs> Remember that Trump took Vance to the Supreme Court twice and lost both times. Yeah, and, and, and on the heels of that Supreme Court victory, I mean, it was like within four months that we had uh, the indictment of Alan Weisselberg. So, I, you know, it... it I get it. We all get it. Uh, but, um, uh, you know, there there is there is work being done out of that office. And and I do want to add um, in terms of Vance's legacy, uh, he led that office for 10 years. And uh, the, the principal thing that I think he'll be remembered for is drastically curtailing the number of cases brought by the Manhattan DA's office from over 100,000 to about 42,000. Right. And so gutting those 60,000 indictments are almost all like literally it rounds up to 100 percent. They are progressive decisions to no longer charge primarily black and brown people for nonviolent offenses like loitering and smoking pot in public. Yeah. Um, Yeah. And in terms of his successor, remember that when uh, Alvin Bragg was a state prosecutor, he was part of the team that, that brought the successful civil case against the Trump Foundation 
Mm-hmm. Right. That's the one in which Donald Trump personally acknowledged misusing charitable funds uh, as the sham charity was shut down and they're no longer able to operate a charity in New York. <laughs> oh, and Bragg is now the first African-American to serve as Manhattan's district attorney. First black DA. Yeah. So, look, we'll be watching Bragg carefully to see if and when his office reaches a decision about the former guy. Uh, so, uh, OK, so that's what happened uh, earlier this week. Um, as for the breaking news, I, I I love that these sometimes come from the least likely sources <laughs> in terms of my law geekery. Uh, but but first, so we're 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 talking about uh, the New York Attorney General investigation. I need to give you a disclaimer on a potential conflict of interest. You have to recuse uh, my, yourself from the podcast. Yeah, I don't think so. But uh, my former firm, Zuckerman Spader, represents a partner at Morgan Lewis and Bacchius. That's a that's a huge international law firm. Um, And that partner is somebody who has been advising the Trump org for like 15 years. Right. And they so Morgan Lewis and Bacchius also received a subpoena. Zuckerman Spader represents the law firm. We're not going to talk about the law firm subpoenas, but, you know, it's it's somebody I work very closely with. So I wanted to disclose that that potential conflict of interest. Nice. Now, now back to the show. On Monday, <laughs> this is, I just love this, New York Supreme Court Judge Arthur Engeron. Um, and you remember, because New York is weird, like Supreme Court means their trial court, right? It's totally backwards. Anyway, so <laughs> Judge Engeron entered a stipulated order regarding Tish James's civil investigation into Trump's businesses. And this was technically an order amending the caption to add Donald J. Trump, Trump Jr. and Ivanka as respondents. Of course, it's the why they were added to the caption that really gave us the breaking news. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. And so anyone who's like, oh, they're leaking and you I, I believe we're going to go over this when we go over the motion to quash. Uh, <laughs> but, you know, they're very upset that it was revealed that they're a part of this. Uh, and and you know, we learned on December 1st through this that New York Attorney General Tish James served Trump, Trump Jr. and Ivanka with subpoenas. Specifically, the former guy got a subpoena. Uh, deuces tecum and ad testificandum. Do I have that? Mm-hmm. Yep. yep All you right. do. Requesting both documents and testimony. While Junior and Ivanka were both compelled to show up and testify, but they didn't have to bring any additional documents. Yeah, that's right. So that deuces tecum, right? And that literally is Latin for bring stuff with you. Right? <laughs> I'm, not make, I'm not making that up. That's what it means. So the deuces tecum. like your cat yeah. and a trophy I got <laughs> I, for a, a video. Bring I things. And then it lists... <laughs> eight things that it wants the former guy to bring, right? Um, four of these I was expecting, right? Any valuation of any asset used in connection with any Mazars report from 2010 to the present. So, you know, remember all that Mazars stuff that you talked about that went all the way to the Supreme Court and the former guy lost? Turns out, uh, apparently, those things were pretty useful after all, right? Told you. Um, so that was categories one, two, and three. And then number eight is kind of a catch-all, and it says we want documents related to insurance coverage, seeking insurance, procure it, right? Any any sort of, and, and again, that is very standard when you are uh, looking at financial fraud. But then there were four specific categories that, um, that were new to me anyway. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And those are number one. Uh, deuces tecum, right? Bring right. this with you. Documents concerning the Trump International Hotel and Tower in Chicago. Yeah, news totally new to me. <laughs> Number two, documents concerning the potential donation of a conservation or preservation easement. That's Seven Springs. 
That's Seven Springs. Anything related to the development or alteration of Seven Springs Estate. And four, any communications with Forbes magazine (laughs) regarding the (laughs) Trump org assets. Because as we know, they just recently dragged the editor of Forbes in front... (laughs) I love this. I'm sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt. No, it's okay. But they asked him like, hey... What did Trump say? To him? And he testified that Trump told him to make him worth ten billion instead of four billion because it looked mm-hmm. good to lenders. <laughs> so that's like that's, a little. That's intent. what we call a bad fact in <laughs> civil litigation. You know. <laughs> so uh, let's talk about this uh, conservation or preserve uh, preservation. I think that's that tax easement that says if you don't develop something, you get a bunch of money back. But that's federal, right? So, yeah. So let me let me break this down because I think I understand where the fraud is coming here, and I definitely want you to speak to Seven Springs, right? Because that is a piece of the puzzle. You know a ton about this, and um, and I think that that we've just gotten really strong indications that it's on uh, Tish James's radar. So, an easement, you know, that's a thing that you put in a deed when you convey a piece of property that restricts the rights of future property holders. Right? The most common is, hey. Um, I own a house. I presently let my neighbor walk across my yard to get to the park. I'm going to sell the house. I don't want to screw my neighbor. So I put the easement right there in the deed. And that means that the next person to buy my house uh, will buy it subject to a right-of-way easement of my neighbor to walk to the park. So everybody's on notice. We all know what we're buying. Right? Um, here, uh, conservation or preservation easement, we have two kinds of restrictions. So first, the preservation easement is a permanent restriction on the new owner regarding how that property can be developed. And typically it comes about in historical context, right? So say I owned land in, you know, Gettysburg, Maryland, that was a Civil War landmark, right? I might convey that property subject to a preservation easement that makes sure future owners continue to use the land in ways that are consistent with maintaining the historical character of the land, right? Hmm. And, you know, you litigate that. But 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 again, you couldn't just, you know, bulldoze the battlefield and build a, you know, Trump Tower there. Hmm. And the conservation easement uh, does not, the, the conservation easement goes to a third party and that gives them the right. They're like the neighbor, right? That gives them the right to come onto the property and inspect it and actually make sure that the landowner is complying with that preservation requirement. So that's what that means from a legal perspective. Which doesn't sound like anything Donald Trump, who has never run a legitimate charity in his life and doesn't give a shit about history, would ever do. I mean, we know his history with the family <laughs> and the whole Coney Island thing, right? Uh, it, yeah, it, so it must certainly does not, right? But <laughs> then I kind of put this together, okay? And, 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 and here's what I think is going on. When a landowner donates a qualified preservation easement to a charitable organization, the value on that easement gets to be claimed as a charitable deduction on the grantor's income tax. Hmm. How do you calculate the value on the easement? You take the fair market value of the property before you stuck the easement on it, and then you subtract the fair market value of the property with the easement attached, right? And, 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 and look, there are plenty of legitimate ways in which you can do this, right? Like you would pay slightly more 
theoretically, for a house that didn't have the easement that let the neighbor walk across, right, to, to own it outright, fee simple, no conditions, than you would for the house with the easement across, because now you got to watch my dumbass neighbor walk across your lawn every day, right? So it lowers the value of your property a little bit. When you restrict the uses of the property to conform with the historical character of the property, that drops the value a lot, right? So yeah. typically you can say, hey, I have donated this to the Civil War Museum uh, and I have donated that particular easement. It was super valuable because here's how much it reduced the value of the property. Yeah. So the, the potential for fraud becomes glaringly obvious, right? So <laughs> yeah. I buy a, a worthless piece of property with some dubious historical value. I claim it's worth millions and then give it away to a charity with a preservation easement on it. And then when you come around to do an appraisal afterwards, it's now super duper worthless. But I could take a tax deduction on the imaginary millions of dollars the property supposedly lost due to the easement. Uh Bingo. Now, look, I am not saying that's the scheme Trump used or even that there was actual fraud. Sorry, I'm going to have to pause here while our listeners stop giggling at the thought that Trump actually conducted a non-fraudulent transaction. But um, but but yeah, right. So this is hypothetically the way in which it might work if you were the kind of person that, you know, abuses charities in order to uh, financially launder money. Yeah, and 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 Andrew Seven Springs Estates yeah. has a conservation easement. <laughs> there you go. So uh, why don't you talk a little bit about the Seven Springs Estate? Yeah, it's just a, a a little bit of of information that I know. And this is a federal tax. This was something that he got on his federal income tax. Um, and and I I was had been looking for similar state statutes uh, mm. about easements. Uh, but it, it, there must be because Tish James wants to know about it, right? Bring it with you. Take whom, deuces, take whom. Bring your video trophy with you. Um, but basically uh, what happened is, is he said that he, in order to, well, he promised not to develop this land, right? And yeah. so he got a $21 million tax credit for that conservation easement to not develop that land. Problem is you cannot be using that for private purposes. And they have been. The Trump family uses Seven Springs Estates for private purposes all the time. So, because there's rules that come along with that conservation easement, right? One of yeah, them is you can't you, live there. <laughs> right, right. Consistent with the historical character of the land. That's exactly right. Yeah. yeah. So that's kind of what's going on with Seven Springs. And you do get to deduct on both your state and your federal taxes. So that's how it can be implicated in the state investigation. Right. So. But he got straight up twenty mil, $21 million tax credit from yep, the feds. Yep. Yeah. Why not triple dip if you can? So. Uh, right. Yeah. Now, let's turn to the arguments for quashing the subpoena, <laughs> which appear to just reiterate the same argument that this is a witch hunt, politically motivated animus by Tish James. On page 11, after reciting at length the degree of cooperation between her office and the New York Attorney General or uh, the dist Manhattan District Attorney, it says... A deposition of Trump Jr. and Ivanka by the office of the AG is effectively the same as a deposition by the New York DA's office, only without the protection of a grand jury. So, you know, we're criminals and we don't want to tell you our <laughs> crimey stuff because it could we could go to jail. You can't do that. No, but I mean, that I mean, that's actually 
one of the better Trump lawyer arguments I've heard in a while, saying you're trying to circumvent my rights to be seated before a grand jury uh, by by bringing me in on a civil thing and you're going to share everything with the criminal guy. It, it, it is. Um, and, and it's a it's a better argument. I still wouldn't call it good. No, right. <laughs> um, and, and 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 I'm going to I'm going to give away the game plan that will take all the wind out of the sails. But this is one of the very few Trump arguments that doesn't immediately strike you as preposterous and stupid. Yeah. So you know, uh, points to them for that, right? I thought um, it was just going to be this is politically motivated, which right, politically right. motivated. Yeah, but it's all you're depriving me of a grand jury. So um, so let's unpack that a little. The first thing that's really, really important to know is that legal scholars are, I don't want to say it's unanimous, it's probably 85-15 that the, quote, right to be indicted by a grand jury is not a substantive right. It was something that, you know, we thought was really, really important in the 18th century. Um, but, But for example, it is one of the few rights that is in the Bill of Rights that is not incorporated out to the states, right? So it doesn't matter, for example, if your state, you know, California has a uh, a f- the equivalent of the First Amendment in it or not, right? Like California can't violate the First Amendment to the Constitution because the First Amendment was incorporated out to the states via the 14th Amendment. Um, and that's true for virtually every substantive right in the Bill of Rights uh, with a handful of exceptions. And one of them is grand jury. So um, you do not necessarily have a state right to be indicted by a grand jury. And many states don't employ grand juries. Um, so in terms of actual prejudice, so that's, so that's sort of the first part is it's not clear. Now, again, New York does have uh, a, 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 the, 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 the protection in its state constitution of a grand jury. Um, but, but in terms of evaluating whether it's substantive harm, this doesn't seem particularly strong to me. The argument uh, with respect to self-incrimination, right, has a nuance to it that that is a decent argument. Okay, but again, I'm going to show you how we're going to get around it. Right. Um, so the one good argument, it, it, first, I should say, you can plead the fifth in a civil proceeding just as you can in a criminal. Right. Um, we talked about that on recent opening arguments. Um, but it, it really makes though, me look bad. <laughs> yeah. <right. It's> ter- <laughs> um, but 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 no, like despite the plain language in the Constitution. Um, grand the intent behind it, you know, the the spirit uh, of the Bill of Rights was to protect you against self-incrimination in uh, other proceedings, right? So you can plead the fifth before Congress, even though that's not a criminal trial. You can plead the fifth uh, in a civil proceeding, even though it's not a criminal case. Um, but there's a little bit of a distinction when you take five in a criminal trial. The prosecution cannot draw an adverse inference against you for that, right? Like you, you cannot get up as the prosecutor in your closing argument and go, well, it's kind of strange. We haven't heard, you know, O.J. Simpson testify in his own defense, right? You can't do that uh, because concomitant with having the right is we don't want to punish you for exercising that right. Yeah. You can, in some cases, get an instruction of the jury, if you're entitled to a civil jury, uh, or of the judge, so it's the judge instructing himself, which has always been weird about bench trials, but you can draw an adverse inference when a civil litigant takes five. 
Um, and and it, it's, you know, this sort of oddball corner case, but that's because the, the burden of proof is different, right? In a civil case, you just have to prevail 50.1 to 49.9 as opposed to beyond a reasonable doubt. Um, so the motion argues, right, by issuing this from the civil case and in the 11 pages that you referred to of documenting how closely Tish James is cooperating with the New York District Attorney's Office. Essentially, what they're doing is an end run around the DA to get uh, information that, you know, you would otherwise uh, would would come out in the DA's investigation. And by requiring Donald Trump, Trump Jr. Ivanka to take five in the civil proceeding, we can then that they would then have the right to go before the court and request an adverse instruction, right? And that's not something they could do if you just waited uh, and let this come from the New York District Attorney's Office. Um, so, right, it sounds like a pretty good argument so far, right? Uh, uh, <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, you know, yeah, like because, you know, you, you, you're saying, hey, you're going to use... If I you you're taking my right to plead the fifth away, basically. Yeah, you're 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 imposing a, cr- a even though I on still it. can right. plead the fifth, but in the civil case, it it I can be used. It can you be used negatively, uh, inferentially? Uh, but I mean, if they do, they can't use it negatively in the criminal. Uh, so so. Yeah, and and. and. The, the so what is a good argument, uh, but but I have an even be- well, no, that's right, because you, you, you could say you have exactly the same rights that you would if we did it the other way around. Right. Which is uh, if you took five in the criminal case, we would then re-ask and, and that came out first. We would then reissue the subpoena and make you do it again in the civil case and draw an adverse in- inference if you did it again. Right um, now, their response to that comes on page 20, in which they argue in the alternative that you should just wait. Right. Do the civil case later um, because, of course, they want to delay. Right. That's their entire strategy. Uh, and they say, well, yeah, we might voluntarily. Who's to say uh, that we wouldn't voluntarily answer it if it were just in the civil case? And the answer to that is that there was not a chance that they would voluntarily comply with this in the civil case. So, you know, don't don't fall into that. So if I were Tish James, um, I, what I would do in the opposition to this motion is just stipulate that they won't ask the judge to 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 pursue an adverse instruction, right? You can say that. You can say, hey, yeah, okay, we agree we won't, we won't, we will not hurt, uh, we will not hold your assertion of your Fifth Amendment privilege against self-incrimination against you in the civil case. And that's it. So taking the only (laughs) possible harm away. Exactly right. And that, and, and I would do, and, and. So we, we, we won't, we won't think you're a piece of shit if you plead the Fifth. Right. We won't use it against you in the civil case. Yeah. Now and what? so <laughs> there and and that reply will be, well, you still, you know, are kind of doing an end run around the grand. Tra- it, 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 it will gut their only argument. So. <laughs> That's a good one. Yeah, I wonder if it even needs to go that far. But I mean, you know, might as well put it in there. All right, fine. We won't ask for it. Peace yep. out. Um, That's hilarious. Uh, That's really hilarious to me. Now, uh, this uh, would be relegated to state court, 
correct? Or can there be situations in which the Trumps can pull this out and appeal it in federal court? So the only way in which you could appeal this in federal court is if uh, the, the state court decides some constitutional issue or decides something adverse to your federal constitutional rights. Uh, that's why it was really, really important. And I went through that whole uh, introduction in the beginning about how the grand jury protection does not apply in state court proceedings. So yeah. this this absolutely that, that, that uh, as far as I look at this, there is nothing that I could imagine uh, that would um, give rise to a careful court handing down a ruling uh, that would get you out of state court, which, you know, <laughs> is, only, is what we want to make sure doesn't happen. The only thing I could think of is if for some reason the court says, no, sorry, you have to testify, and they refuse and send out the warrants uh, and somehow need to get the feds involved because they're crossing state lines to some, you know, the, Florida, maybe Ron wants to play a little game about you know, uh, extradition to New York, and then they need to get the feds involved. Maybe then they can sue in federal court and start the delay thing. But I mean, that's pretty pretty far out there. Concern, uh, considering, I mean, it is possible to mess around with the extradition, but ultimately it would fail. Yeah, yeah, I, I, I think that's right. And and you could decouple those issues. So I see. So it would be like that's you can you can delay that thing all you want, but this is going forward. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly right. Roger. Cool. Well, thank you for that very informative and uh, hilarious motion to quash to squash. <laughs> right. Motion. I love I love the uh, common uh, motion to squash, and and that is uh, so do so 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 do all practicing attorneys, right? <laughs> <laughs> All right, everybody, we'll be right back uh, with more Clean Up on All 45. Stay with us. Hey, everybody, it's AG, and this segment of Clean Up on All 45 is brought to you by BetterHelp, bringing you professional online counseling whenever you need it most. Advice from friends and family can be great, but sometimes not so great. What about when it's not enough or sometimes very unhelpful? That's why BetterHelp is here. They're here to assess your needs and match you with a licensed professional therapist. Plus, it's online, so you can message your counselor anytime from anywhere and get timely and thoughtful responses. No sitting in traffic, no crowded waiting rooms, no offices. It's safe, comfortable, and convenient. Finding the right professional to talk to is very important. Handling it alone can be really tough. Uh, but asking for help is also hard, but BetterHelp makes it easy. They also make it free and easy to change counselor if you need to, so you can get that great therapeutic match. And they're also more affordable than offline counseling, and they have financial aid available. BetterHelp is not a crisis line. BetterHelp is not self-help. It's professional counseling done securely online. And their licensed professionals specialize in a wide range of areas that might not be locally available to you. But you can hop on BetterHelp and you can get access to all of these specialties, including depression, anxiety, family conflicts, trauma, grief, so many other areas. So start living a happier life today. Get 10% off your first month at BetterHelp.com cleanup. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash cleanup. And you can join the over 1 million people who've taken charge of their mental health. That's betterhelp.com slash cleanup for 10% off your first month. And thanks, BetterHelp. Eh, welcome back. Now it's time for our favorite segment and yours, comings and goings. <laughs> and we begin with my favorite, Andrew. 
We teased this as soon as it was announced. But effective January 3rd, 2022, Devin Nunes is no longer a member of Congress. <laughs> he left, and I cannot stress how hilarious this is, to join Trump's doomed grift enterprise, the already in, under investigation by the Securities and Exchange Commission and FINRA, <laughs> Trump Media and Technology Group, as their CEO, which I interpret as steal as much money as you can before the clock runs out. I, yeah, uh, that, I mean, that has to be the handshake deal between Trump and Nunes is, you know, why don't you come on over and, you know, whatever these gullible idiots send to me, you know, grab with both hands and we'll get one of those little, uh, you know, hot air machines to blow the uh, blow the dollar bills around. Um, I, I, I also want to point out that uh, Nunes uh, resigns just as California's nonpartisan redistricting committee. Uh, also covered this on OA, cheap plug, uh, just redrew uh, his district, um, California 22, um, down from uh, it was estimated to be a Republican plus eight uh, into a Republican plus six district. Now, look, um, that doesn't sound like a lot, but those two points are often pretty significant, right? Um, in terms of recruiting challengers, in, tr in terms of media coverage, in terms of investment into the race, um, Look, I'm not saying that Nunez would have lost in 2022. We've covered how that year is shaping up in terms of historical trends, but it's worth mentioning his district slightly less safe. Yeah. And of course, Nunez gets to stick it to the taxpayers one last time on his way out because his vacancy will trigger a special election because of course it will. So I think, as I understand it, Governor Newsom has 14 days to announce proclamation of election. Uh, and then the special election will occur after that. And alongside all of that, confusingly enough, it's the regularly scheduled election uh, yep. is coming with the primary set to take place on June 7th and the general November 8th. I mean, why don't we just wait for the... Yeah. <laughs> and the answer is California Elections Code, Section 10703. <laughs> I knew you would have some uh, numbers. So, <laughs> so the proclamation of election that you mentioned gives the governor a two-week window to pick an election day, right? So he's got two two weeks to make the proclamation and then a two-week window. The election, the special election, I, I promise you I'm not making this up, must be at least 126 days, but not more than 140 days after the proclamation. So I think I got the calendar right. If Governor Newsom waits the full two weeks to issue the proclamation, which I think he will, we're looking at a special election sometime between May 23rd and June 7th. Under the same law, the primary is, and I'm not going to go into the contingencies between the ninth or the 10th Tuesday before the general election, but that's how you do it, right? Two, two to two and a half months, uh, either the ninth or 10th Tuesday before the, the, the special election date. Um, so that will be a Tuesday somewhere between mid-March and the first week of April. So if you are counting, that means California voters in the 22nd district will go to the polls in March uh, or maybe April, in May, in June, and then November. And if you think that might favor the party that's the most enthusiastic, you would be correct. Which generally. Yep. In off years. In off years. You know what that means. Yeah. <clears throat> Just not going to say it. Um, so hang on. So th there's a special election in sometime first week of June-ish. But the primary is in March? Yep. The primary for that special election oh, oh, is it will see. be in March. Yeah. I see. That's dumb. Okay. 
<laughs> Can't they just consolidate it with the regular election? I don't get that. This is so, so shouldn't there's there a stipulation in excuse me, election code section one zero seven zero three that says unless there's a fucking election right then? So there is. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> there is. But Nunez retired in such a way that you can't trigger it, right? The the special condition of, hey, it's an election year, allows you to consolidate with the general election if that could occur within 200 days of the proclamation. So the latest that could be would be August the 5th. There is just there's no mathematical way to stretch it out to November. But here's what I think you can do to at least get us down from four dates to three. It will still be confusing as all hell. Uh, but but uh, if, but I think you can consolidate the special general election with the regular primary, have them both on June 7th, right? Um, so you wait the full 14 days to issue the proclamation. You set the general special election at June 7th. That would make the primary April 7th. Um, so you would go to the polls in April, in June, and then with everybody else in November. That's what I would do if I were Gavin Newsom. So, you know, we'll, we'll see. Yeah, at least <laughs> one fewer trip to the polls, right? Yeah. Yeah. And and remember, we have the Rumble in the Jungle primaries. They're open. Top yep. two finishers move to the runoff. So it's it's possible to make this an all Democratic field or an all Republican one too. Could be two top Republican contenders. Yeah, let's not have that happen. No, let's not. <laughs> <laughs> but you know in the meantime we'll be watching without Devin Nunes <laughs> <laughs> nothing can take away how happy that makes me <laughs> and we also bid a fond adieu to Jelena McWilliams the head of the Federal Deposit Insurance Corporation and holdover Trump appointee who announced last week she intends to leave her position as of February 4th that'll give Biden another opportunity to strengthen bank regulation at the FDIC McWilliams has been with the FDIC since 2018. She was probably what, like a dressage instructor before Trump appointed her? <laughs> and recently fought with congressional Democrats over proposed changes to how the agency handles bank mergers, because of course she did, because I'm sure that's her, her area of expertise. Yeah, she's she's for no regulations, <laughs> and Democrats are for being responsible human beings. Yeah. So um, the way this plays out politically, Democrats already hold a majority on the board. Um, this will both increase their numbers and also install a Liz Warren favorite as the head of the FDIC by elevating current board member Martin Gruenberg to acting chair. Gruenberg mm. has publicly spoken out against the deregulatory actions taken over the past several years at the Fed. So uh, this is two, you know, two birds, one stone right move, right direction. Yeah. And she didn't uh, give a reason for her piecing out. She just <laughs> said it was a tremendous honor to serve uh, the FDIC, the Fed, and the Senate. So, bye-bye. Yeah, political appointee, yeah. Bye-bye. Adios. And in the lightning round, President Biden continues to work around the clock filling executive branch positions, today appointing the following individuals to serve in key regional leadership roles at the United States Department of Agriculture, Department of Housing and Urban Development, and the SBA, Small Business Administration. So that's Dean Shawmore, Joe Aul, John Burge, Kathleen Williams, and Sarah Waring as the USDA state directors, Jason Poo as the HUD regional administrator for Region 9, and Ted James as a Small Business Administration uh, regional administrator for Region 6. Yep. 
welcome aboard to all these folks again. Uh, President Biden doing the hard work despite obstruction of filling out the executive branch. And again, these are largely rural facing positions. And uh, if you're looking for, is there a difference, right? Is Has everything been ground up into gridlock thanks to Joe Manchin? Um, this is yet another illustration of the Biden administration's stamp on these nominees. Um, every single one has been highlighted for their relationship building with tribal and local leaders. That's something that was notably absent from the last guy's picks. Yeah, yeah, and brains. But yeah, totally. <laughs> Uh, that's, that's our comings and goings. That's our show for today. Uh, I was really excited to, to go over that whole, um, New York attorney general, Manhattan DA stuff. (laughs) It's going to be, you know, I'm hearing rumors, uh, some well-placed sources. There are going to be, uh, there's going to be more action coming out in the Manhattan DA's office. Uh, probably not Trump yet. So chill, cool your tutors. Um, I imagine it's probably superseding against the organization. Maybe they're doing a little Oka, a little tiny Rico. I don't know. I don't know those details, but um, it seems to be a lot of movement happening. And I'm I'm really excited for not, you know, not just Alvin Bragg taking over, but the fact that we still have Pomerantz and Dunn still there doing their thing. And they were pretty much in charge of this thing since Vance announced his retirement anyway. And also very glad that Vance didn't make a charging decision to not charge Donald Trump. Uh, it, yeah, y- yes, right. Everything we said on the last show as a year end, I think continues to apply. Um, the fact that these are still open questions is a glass half full, glass half empty, um, but better than being a glass f- entirely empty no glass um, yeah yeah right there's <laughs> what glass right um and 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 you know and i think your read on the situation is correct I, it I, i'm reminded of the, the 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 very first year i opened my firm i i joined uh this uh round table of uh, business leaders in in baltimore and i will never forget uh the head of a huge executive uh, staffing you know, temp agency began the discussion with, uh, this was like January 4th, right? This is my very first meeting. It was right after the holidays. And she began with saying, it's January 4th. And, um, my damn employees keep bringing their Christmas cookies into the office. Like I had to deal with all this in the month of December and nobody gets any work done. Like all that stuff's over now. Like let's get, it's time to get back to work. Like we, <laughs> and it was like a 20 I was just it was hard I was like chewing my fingernails and you know and she has like a thousand employees right? and I'm just you know it's just me and my dinky law firm but but this was like a 20 minute rant on um, you know employees bringing cookies into the office and like not ready to like buy, like it's January 3rd buckle down people um, so it, I, I pass that along a hilarious uh, but B because I think there is kind of a sense of like uh, you know, hey, it's it's January third. It's January. You know, time to time to buckle down. Time to get stuff done. And uh, and we saw all this on uh, on Monday. So you know, who knows what uh, what the month of January will bring? Yeah, and also looking forward to Attorney General Merrick Garland's statements today, Wednesday, uh, January fifth, mm-hmm. on the state of the one six investigation. No, he's not going to tell you he's investigating Trump. He, he's not going to tell you he's looking at seditious conspiracy charges. 
He's going to get up there and he's going to say, we're going to go wherever the facts take us. We will hold everyone accountable that's responsible for the attack on the Capitol. We love democracy. We love the Constitution. We are doing this. Uh, and that's what you're going to hear. So, uh, I mean, he might surprise us. Yeah, I I, I think you've read that exactly correctly. And, and you know, I would... I would cross apply the comments that I just made, right? Yeah. Uh, I'd I'd love to hear an official announcement of Trump indicted on his obvious crimes from volume two of the Mueller report. That would be uh, so nice. I will continue to hold out hope until you know statute the, of limitations are passed. <laughs> you know? Right, right. <laughs> exactly. But uh yeah, we'll see. We'll see what happens. But uh he's he'll he'll make some statements and uh, you know, he surprised us during his congressional testimony, Andrew, when he said, Yeah, we're following the money and we're employing some other tactics that you probably that post date you, uh, Mr. Whitehouse. And no, I'm not constraining the investigation into the one six uh, uh, it, I'm not constraining it to boots on the ground people who attacked the Capitol building at, by any means. I'm not constraining it to just them. He actually told he actually said that shit, and I was actually yep. pretty like, whoa, that's a that was a lot more than I expected. But this is a, a pre-written speech. I don't think he's taking questions, but I look forward to seeing what he has to say. Agreed, agreed on all counts. All right, cool. Until next week when we go over why everyone's so upset about what Garland is going to say today. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, some some weeks write themselves. <laughs> uh, that's it. I've been Allison Gill. And I'm Andrew Torres. We'll see you next week on Clean Up on Aisle 45. Clean Up on Aisle 45 is written, researched, and produced by Allison Gill and Andrew Torres with editing by Molly Hockey. Our art and logo designer by Joel Reeder and Moxie Design Studios, and our music is composed and performed by Adam Orr. Clean Up on Aisle 45 is a proud member of the MSW Media Network, a collection of creator-owned podcasts dedicated to news, politics, and justice. For more information, visit mswmedia.com.